you know, it would take for me at least another cycle, you know, seven, eight years to go back to parity. And then I'm not really ahead because of inflation, you know? So I thought, wow, it's going to take me like, it's just, I'm already starting so far behind the finish line in such a losing position. How's that going to work? Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for the free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and Create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Maxwell Neem. Maxwell, are you ready to join permission? Yes, absolutely. I have to say, Andrew, I love that intro. You know, that thing you said about your worst loss to keep you winning. Mm-hmm. That That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because a friend of mine, Bevan, who helped me a lot in the beginning of this, he and I reworked that about 50 times to try to come up yeah. with, you know, it's uh, great. Stories of loss to keep you winning. So I appreciate yeah. that. Let me introduce you to the audience. Maxwell Nee is the managing partner of Oeno Wine and Whiskey Investment. He's a multi-award winning entrepreneur who earns his investors a recession-proof and market-beating return with wine and whiskey alternative investments. Uh, Maxwell, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you're bringing to this wonderful world. Yeah, well, well, let me start with a story, right? So wine and whiskey investment, you know, a foray that really stands out for me is I was in Chicago. I was in Chicago, went to this fancy bar, I was there for a holiday. I'm Australian, I'm, you know, not from the US, visiting an old friend who I'm, you know, very close to. And we go to a bar that has dancing and all that sort of thing. They, we sit at the bar and they say to us, you know, you need to spend at least $75 to sit here. I said, okay, cool. You know, we've got a $150, you know, table, tab plenty of room to move you know can't go wrong right and and it, it's a lot of money right in australia that's like 110 dollars, so it's a plus tip it's a lot of money so anyway i sit there and i say to myself i want to order an old-fashioned so an old-fashioned is um like a usually a bourbon or whiskey drink i like to have it whiskey if you know anything about whiskey you probably know mccallan so mccallan's a bit like the um you know the apple of whiskey and he said look you can choose between a mccallan 12 and mccallan 18. And a Macallan 12 is it's been aged in the barrel of 12 years. Macallan 18 is the same liquid, just aged 18 years, right? Six years difference. And I said, you know what? I'm on holiday. Screw it. Let's do an 18. I don't usually order an 18. So I'm having this drink and it's delicious. Like I give my friends some. It's fantastic. And then I asked the bartender, I said, so how, how much again was this drink? Didn't even ask, right? And he didn't tell me. And then he said to me, he said to me, 125. And I said, no, 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 not how much we've spent so far. How much is this drink here? Like this Macallan 18 old fashioned. He said, 125. I said, no, 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 not the bottle. How much is this drink? And he said, 125. And then my friend's sitting next to me, just laughing, you know, sort of like spitting my face as he's laughing. And I said, wow, okay, cool. Well, you know, committed now. How much is the Macallan 12 old fashioned? He's like, 25. And I thought, wow, you know, six years difference equals a 500x difference in the investment of this asset, right? And that started to open my mind to how this market moves and the fundamentals behind this this market, right? Because I'm the end consumer paying 5x more for the um, 
the assets. So, so ultimately, you know, the way I help people invest in wine and whiskey is to get get on the seller side of me, the the, the poor guy in, in the bar in Chicago, paying for that that drink, and allow people to ride the appreciation wave of how these assets age. And how is it structured? Are they investing in a vehicle? Are they investing in a particular barrel? Are they investing in a fraction or something like that? How does that work? Yeah, so we have two options, right? We have people can invest in their own private portfolio, whether they they want to hold bottles or cast in their own name, we'll have them to choose it, you know, buying at the right time, buying young, buying at wholesale price, and then help them to exit it. And we also have an investment fund in the US, in Delaware, where we're basically, it's it's a bit like a, a typical, I think it's called a mutual fund in the US, mm. where instead of shares or whatever, it's wine and whiskey as the hard assets. And so you're buying, what is, what is the person getting when they buy into that? They're getting a fraction of that? They're getting a bottle? They're getting a cask? They're getting what? Or they're yeah, getting so a in share? The private, yeah, in the private portfolio, they get the actual ownership of the bottle. So you could actually take them out of the, the storage and insurance and actually drink them if you wanted to. In the investment fund, yeah, you own your own, for example, allocated shares of the fund mm. and the fund will return what it returns, you know, whatever it is. Last year for our clients, we did 15.87%, which is not bad and it's great. And that was in a time of on the back of COVID and all that sort of thing. So you earn your percentage of that and then be paid out at the end. And how are you calculating that return? Is it like your estimate of the value of that, of how much the value is appreciating or how, how do you understand that return? Yeah, so it's both an art and a science. The science part is that there is an index. There's actually an index for wine. That actually tracks wine a bit like the stock market, exactly like the stock market. And then there's extra steps as well, you know, because we all these assets are hard assets. They're insured, just like if you were to buy a house, a house investment, that to be insured, you need to be independently valued. So that's where the art side comes into it. So you actually mm. have valuers that come in and assess the assets to determine a value. And then we go to market with them and see if we can even beat that value once we go to market. Right. And what is the simplest or easiest way for someone, let's say someone's listening and they think, oh, I'd like to allocate a little bit to that. What's the simplest way? What's the minimum amount, that type of thing for them to do that? Yeah. So what I would say is if you wanted to join the investment fund, the minimum is about $250,000 US dollars. Anything less, I recommend the private portfolio. Either way, I can share with you guys some links to put in the show notes here. But if nothing else, if you add me on LinkedIn, my email, my personal email, Maxwell Nee, is all over LinkedIn. And I'm pretty active on there. I've got about 20,000 connections. So send me a connection and I, I pretty much respond to everyone. Yeah. And just one last question about that. Now I'll have all that in the show notes. And I know plenty of my listeners are looking for alternative investments. So it's definitely you know worth checking it out, I think. And you know what you've already talked about is that the return was a strong positive return in a negative market year, not only for the market, but also for bonds. So if you want to look at the value of this as an alternative investment, giving a uncorrelated return, well, it, you know, did it last year. And that's pretty impressive. One of the questions I have is from a size perspective, how difficult is it to get big? You know, if, if real big institutional money comes, is this a niche that really can only absorb, I don't know, let's just say $50 million as opposed to, no, it's uh, it's multi-billions or is it, you know, what what is the size of the market like? Yeah, great question. Really great question. So the total wine and whiskey market is, last time I checked, it's at least 400 billion. 
So it's, you know, it's like a pretty decent economy. The ones that we invest in is the top 1%. So we're looking at about four to 5 billion as a top 1%. And we choose the top 1% because they sit in their own league, you know, a bit like the luxury economy, you know, Ferrari doesn't need to worry about contraction like yep. Toyota and Honda need to. So yeah, four to 5 billion. Okay. Well, I want you to keep in the back of your mind the answer to the question I'm going to ask you later, which is, you know, what is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Because I'd love to hear about it. But why don't we go into the big question of the day? And now it's time to share your worst investment mm-hmm. ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah, great. I love this question. I love the whole concept of this yeah. podcast. So I was 21. I was in Brisbane, Australia, and we were going through, so the the city that I lived in was, it's a property investment. The city that I lived in was in the middle of transitioning between everyone living in houses, people starting to live in apartments. And so there was all these big apartments coming up, you know, apartments being built everywhere, massive, which created a massive oversupply because the council was just approving them and then the banks were just funding them. So that was just like a massive oversupply. So I bought an apartment in Australia off the plan. So off the plan means that like the apartment was worth about 450000 Australian dollars and you have to pay 10% deposit, but it's not built yet. So it'll be built in, you know, 36 months, you know, three years or whatever. And then you pay the rest when you settle, right? And, you know, I was in love with this thing because I walked into the showroom and, you know, I was definitely sold. I walked into the showroom and it was like, you know, I, I used to watch the show Suits, you know, the the legal show with mm. the guy in New York and the apartment, the showroom looked like his apartment. And I was like in love with that lifestyle, like that, you know, young professional living in New York City, like all that sort of stuff. So I was sold on the lifestyle and didn't even really care about the apartment or the price which like most things are, you know, you're sold on the emotion and then the logic comes after. So I put the deposit down, didn't have the money for the deposit. So I borrowed to borrow the deposit. <laughs> I, borrowed, I borrowed the money for the deposit, paid it back. So I was like, I've got three years to pay this back and then save some money extra, right? So plenty of time. And, you know, as you're committed to something, you know, you're already committed to an investment. What I've learned is that you only find reasons to fall more in love with it. So it becomes harder and harder to walk away, <laughs> even if it looks bad. You know what I mean? Like, it's like all those guys that invest in Called those- confirmation bias. Um, yeah, exactly. All those guys that invest in those big scams. Like I was watching the Bernie Madoff series on Netflix. And, you know, what I could really feel was once people were in for a billion dollars, they they didn't want to hear any more bad news, right? Because you're already in for a billion dollars. So this felt like a billion dollars to me. And at that point, you know, I spent three months picking furniture, you know, so really falling in love with this thing, furniture, forks, you know, cups, like glass, crystal, whiskey tumblers, like all this stuff, right? And then didn't do any due diligence on the stupid thing. And then I saw an article that was first sign of bad news because I got three years to, you know, to settle this investment. The first sign of bad news was about halfway through, I saw an article saying that the developer because the place was so city centric, it was in a very noisy part of the city, so in a bit of like the nightlife part of the city. So the developer was, I don't think the right term is sued, but he was like legally obligated, according to local council, to invest $10 million in, um, you know, like triple glazed glass mm-hmm. so that, you know, the people living there didn't have to hear like 
the nightclubbing and all that sort of stuff. So that's not a good sign because, you know, that that means the developer's got to take that 10 million bucks out of somewhere else and all of our apartments get smaller with triple glazed glass. Mm. And just that sort of stuff started to unfold, which I totally didn't think about, you know, my first investment and, you know, didn't look at the metrics, didn't know anything about the developer. And people were saying stuff to me before I even signed, oh, you know, are you sure? And But, you know, I was, the train had already left the station, right? Confirmation bias. And... So then the place comes time for the place to settle. And, you know, I've, I've spent another fortune on furniture for this place. It hasn't <laughs> even settled yet because I kept seeing, I kept seeing what's it called um, sales, you know, like King Furniture Living 50% off. I thought, oh, wow, you know, I might as well grab it now because I need it anyway. So, and then what happened was, and this document just, Settle is a legally binding document. You know, it's called an unconditional contract. So no matter what happens, like, you know, they could effectively bankrupt me, which they did threaten because I didn't want to settle. So then I work at the bank at the time. I, I, I go to get the loan. The valuer goes in to value the property. And he's like, look, I can only I can only value this at like 88% of what I signed for. And I've got to settle for what I signed for. So I'm 12%. You know, my, my property, my expected value has already lost 12%. And I thought, wow, it's already lost 12%. And then I started forecasting, how long would it take for me to get back to parity? Mm. You know, it would take for me at least another cycle, you know, seven, eight years to get back to parity. And then I'm not really ahead because of inflation, you know? So I thought, wow, it's going to take me, like, it's just, I'm already starting so far behind the finish line in such a losing position. How's that going to work? So then I go to settle and then I decide sort of right at the last minute, I get the loan approved and everything. I had to put in more money than what I, you know, really wanted to, all that sort of stuff. But I, I worked at the bank at the time, so I could get a good rate and good deal and all that sort of stuff. And then I decide last minute, I'm like, you know what, I'm just gonna walk away. Even if I lose a deposit, forty-five thousand dollars, I'm gonna walk away because it doesn't make sense. You know, it just it just doesn't make any sense. And I was, you know, twenty or by this time I was 24, you know, young and a little bit irresponsible. Yeah. Well, if they want to bankrupt me, they could bankrupt me. <laughs> right. What was the deposit amount? 45,000. Right. Oh, right. 45,000. That's a lot to walk two, away from. Two years. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It didn't feel like at the time because that was money from three years ago, right. you know? But yeah, it, no, it was. And I, and I almost didn't. But then I thought, no, it just doesn't make sense. You know, I'm, mm. I'm cutting off my you know i'm I'm cutting off a finger rather than cutting off my arm right in terms of like the commitment you know and by leaving them um, with the deposit does that relieve you of any legal obligation or they're still trying to no 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 so they still try to extract it you know so i ended up having to go back to the agent who was a friend of mine who felt bad about the situation she's like oh my god you know i had no idea like this was meant to be a fantastic project the market was meant to you know this wasn't meant to be oversold and overpromised and whatever. And then she helped me to find a replacement buyer of which they only signed the deal because I signed over the deposit to them. Mm -hmm. So I managed, I like by the skim of my teeth, I managed to avoid like the legal pressing of the law firm, you know, which started in bankruptcy and whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, assign my deposit over to the new buyer and, you know, they, they've got the asset today. Right. And how would you describe what you learned from this? Yeah. So as I described, I learned that 
see, I'm, you know, I'm an extrovert. I'm very like passionate, you know, fiery, you can probably tell in the way I'm speaking, emotionally charged in like a, you know, in like a passionate way. So I learned that, you know, it doesn't hurt to, it never, it like it might feel like at the time because it feels like it's urgent or whatever, but it, it never hurts to, to just like chill out mm-hmm. and, and think about something. And it also never hurts to, to look at other options, you know, and it's almost, it's almost a red flag if you're that attached to something. So, okay. That's what I really learned. I learned that when you're attached to something, that's a red flag. That yep. doesn't mean like the stars have aligned and you, and you know, the universe is giving you like this once a lifetime shot or whatever. If there's any attachment at all, you've got to just double check yourself. Mm. Excellent learnings and an interesting story. Maybe I'll share a few things that I took away. It's it's interesting, you know, to uh, to go back. I, I loved your story about Chicago and how you started your business. And that was interesting. Also, you know, going through the story, and, and it's an important one for the listeners out there about how property works, you know, off plan. And you see something, you think that's interesting. I remember I saw a condo on the street next to mine. And every time I walked to the park, I saw them building this condo and the street that that condo was on connected to the park. So I thought this is a really, you know, good location and looks interesting. So I did the same thing. I bought something off plan and, you know, they, I watched them as they built that thing and they stayed on track and all that. But by the time it got done and I was going to move in, I realized, you know, first of all, it was half the size of the one that I lived in at the time that I was renting. So I was kind of hesitant to move into it. And then I just found that I didn't really, it wasn't my thing. And then I rented it for a while. And then I realized I'm not a landlord. And then I sold it. And in the end, I got, you know, probably 1% return on average over the years. And so it kind of brought me back to that story. One of my takeaways from what you're talking about, first of all, is confirmation bias. And that is the idea of looking for things that confirm your decision. And I think that's what happens to all of us. And so you have to really be aware. I think the best way to look at that is kind of like, you could call it the white Toyota syndrome. As soon as you buy a white Toyota, you realize the world is is full of white Toyotas. Everywhere you look, you see one. You've obviously made a smart decision. But if I if I think about it, my biggest takeaway is that property can be a trap and it's not an easy liquid thing to get in and out of like the stock market or let's say an index. And so when you go into, it's really important to do that research that you talked about and you talked about slowing down. My notes that I just took was slow down, do your research, especially if you're attached. And I think my final takeaway is that, and I think this is critical for the listeners and the viewers is it's okay to walk away. Yeah. And and I'll just add one thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just add one thing. So probably an even bigger point is, you know, if you're not an expert, it's your first time doing something, get a mentor, get a coach or like, just, just pay for it. Just pay for an expert. If you can find one, you know, I actually had a best friend who was an expert in the field who worked for a competitor and I didn't even think to talk to him, you know, so I didn't have the awareness to like, I didn't have the awareness of, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, but if mm-hmm. you could just have that awareness, okay, you don't know what you're doing and there's no harm in that because I've just never done it before. 
you know, the first time you learn to drive a car, you don't just jump into the car, hope for the best. <laughs> like, you, you know, that ends up in a car crash. You get someone to teach you. And, that, and that's because you're aware that you've never done it before and you're sitting there with like the steering wheel and you don't know what to do, right? So like everyone, especially in investing, like I think so many, um, you know, wounds or potholes could be avoided if people could just put their hand up more and like seek an expert you know and and maybe the expert doesn't work out maybe you need like two or three but Mm. that's far far better off than what i did which is just you know cowboying into something i completely didn't know about where the stakes are really high yeah and the saying penny wise pound foolish is an interesting one like if you have to pay for the expert it may even be better it may force you to think about i really got to listen to this you know to what this guy's saying So let me ask you the last question, and that is, what is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Yeah, so my number one goal for the next 12 months is probably a bit similar to yours. It's basically to just educate as many people as possible, you know, how much more is out there in terms Mm. of the world of investment. You know, obviously, I've got a, a particular area of expertise with wine and whiskey, because the way I see it is this, you know, the average person is usually seven to eight out of 10 educated on property because everyone knows about it it's been you know in the news for a thousand years and and all that sort of stuff and you know the average person is probably like zero out of 10 mm. in terms of wine and whiskey investment so i just want to bring that up to like a seven and then you know the world will will be able to make their own educated decisions on what's the best thing for them based on so basically empower people in their investment journey Fantastic. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you have not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Maxwell, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of A Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment do you have any parting words for the audience no i'll just say that guys you know andrew has got this podcast down pat so subscribe get in there i I really love this concept appreciate it and that's a wrap on another great story to help us create grow and protect your well fellow risk takers let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives this is your worst podcast host andrew Stott saying i'll see you on the upside <laughs>